0: Call cool to say, I'm your host, Nina Bowers. Thanks for joining me. To recap, this series will be my exploration and sharing of voicemails my father left me with my context and insights on the topics touched on in each message left between 2012 and 2016 when I was living in Los Angeles. I am doing this to honor him in a structured way, but I want to clarify that while my dad is a central piece of this series, not every story will directly involve him, because I cannot expect to tell his whole story as I did not live it, only my own, with the influence of his role as my father in connection to that experience. Through these messages, I am recalling moments from that time and how I remember it now. I'll review and extract what I can from the messages as they are the basis for each episode. Painting this picture with my memories, I believe, makes voicemails richer and more meaningful to understand. Simply speaking, one's truth seems easy and obvious up to the realization of how much vulnerability it actually involves. And knowing your truth also gets harder with time and perspective. There's a benefit to not talking about the past. But I've spent years of my life at this point consumed by the stories of others, and I believe that everyone's experiences are important and interesting, so why not contribute mine? This is my assurance that I am not going insane, though it might seem that way. I was always a nostalgic person with a strong sense of memory, but sharing helps me detach from this in a healthy way that allows me to appreciate my moments as observations. I hope you enjoy hearing them as much as I like telling them. second message was left about two weeks after I had settled in LA at my brother Paul's house in Echo Park. Paul has been described by many as quite charismatic and a fixture in his neighborhood where he's lived for over 20 years. I felt incredibly lucky to be landing in a place that was so cool and comfortable but didn't want to rely on him or my twin brothers Stephen and Mike to help me find my way. So when I saw a posting for a PA gig in LA through someone on Facebook, it seemed kismet. I was connected with this NYU grad school thesis film that was shooting in Palm Springs. How out of my depth and over my head I was only dawned on me after the first meeting. And I think this was one of the most high profile jobs I actually ever had while in LA. The director was a young lady named Francesca who smoked e-cigarettes before there were jewels. She had me meet her at Soho House in West Hollywood, a glorified co-working space. It's an exclusive wheeling and dealing club where movies were brokered. I drove straight down Sunset to get there and through all the neighborhoods and stretches in between. Francesca found me endearing in my naivete. So she decided I could be the director's assistant, because I had never PA'd. I had no idea what this involved or what the difference was, and it wasn't a paid job, but I didn't care. She had an air about her I'd seen before, an anxiety that trembled around her. Maybe it was just the nicotine. Francesca bluntly told me at that first meeting that I needed an iPhone if I was to do this job. So I caved and got an upgrade finally. I'd been a bit of a Luddite in college and refused to get a smartphone that whole time. While not entirely behind the curve as those were the early days of smartphones, I was lagging for my age, but I enjoyed the flick of a flip phone and how small and light they had become but I needed to get smart and navigate in this new place. In my last year living in New York, I grew bitter of the subway with the inability to control my commute to classes and the tension of sharing a space with people while simultaneously ignoring them and being ignored. Sure, there was the opportunity to read or feel like you were surfing a little roller coaster, but I also felt myself constantly needing to be as small As possible and carry as little as I could. Driving in LA was liberating to have my own whole bubble to steer about. Your car and how you drove it said more about you than what you were wearing or reading, at least while in motion. Since everyone had their own car, I became more accustomed to driving alone than with people. Francesca was dating Michelle Rodriguez at the time, and was able to get her to star in the film. Naturally, she ended up making me both the director and the lead actor's assistant, which meant I became a weird third wheel in their dynamic. I accompanied them everywhere to serve as a buffer, dealt with coffee orders, and helped get Michelle to set from her house in Venice Beach, even though I lived on the opposite side of town for the first day of shooting. When I arrived that morning at some ungodly hour before dawn, I hadn't realized I would essentially be a carpool dummy, sitting passengers so she could drive in the fast lane. Michelle had already starred in several Fast and the Furious movies at that point, and did all her own stunts. I vaguely remember hearing reference to a DUI at the time, but only now, after looking it up do I realize that she actually had several citations and was sentenced to jail time in 2007. Avatar had come out a few years back but I had never seen it so I was at a loss for what to talk about. I remember she spoke a fair amount about conspiracy theories. This was my first time up close consistently experiencing a famous person and I was unprepared i thought celebrities were supposed to be humble or surprisingly awkward in person but she was exactly who she was in movies except with a bit more self-awareness regardless i found myself trying to humanize her before we got on the road to palm springs she took her car to get it washed and offered me potato chips at about six in the morning as we raced down the freeway with no one on the road i was impressed with her driving shifting gears eyes fixed in front of her music blaring but i also felt uneasy like i wasn't in the car with her somehow we were sharing space but we were not in the same moment after a few days of filming michelle got fed up with the amateur set and we ended up getting tipsy on margaritas with her co-star and the wardrobe person at a random mexican restaurant francesca called furious but We were in no condition to return at that point, and Michelle threatened to walk off the project, which would have made the whole thing a bust. I felt like I failed to do my duty, but also that none of it was ever really within my grasp. I didn't see the finished product of the film, but it was some sort of action story about badass femmes beating up creepy bikers, very reminiscent of Grindhouse, which had come out a couple years before. I remember somehow a helicopter shot was involved. The budget for this grad school senior thesis was astronomical. Nearly everyone that worked on the project, aside from Francesca and Michelle, were incredibly nice and professional. And I learned part of the fun of a set is sharing in the collective stress of it all and gossiping about the divas. But since half the crew were NYU students and I was caught between the two egos, I didn't walk away with many contacts. Only a surreal and exhausting experience that made me completely question the path I had taken. Wednesday, December fifth, at ten twenty three PM.
1: Hey, mean, it's Dad. Just wanted to catch up, see what's been happening last night and tonight, or today, yesterday, today. uh, Your adventures in this new uh, job are all very interesting. And uh, anyhow, um, I see you're either still busy or otherwise occupied. However, um, give me a buzz when you uh, find time. Uh, getting a little late tonight. It's about 11 o'clock here. No, oh, just 10:30. Anyway, um, I'm and I'm eager to hear how it's how it's all working out. And uh, so, hope all is well. And as I say, ring me up when you get a chance. Bye bye for now.
0: My dad lived vicariously through all of his children. Isn't that why one has kids after all? He knew no celebrities, so name dropping was useless, but knowing that I had gotten a job within the first couple weeks of being there was encouraging to him. As the baby of the family, I was often the most idealistic and optimistic about the future. funny because most anyone that knows me socially probably wouldn't say that is how I am perceived but it was the role I played for my father and family. I didn't really know how to share my uncertainty with my plan to my dad. I was good at talking about concepts and abstract ideas but didn't know how to translate this to the real world of work with him particularly in the chaos of this industry that neither of us actually knew. My sister worked in film, but never ventured to Hollywood, and after a few production gigs moved into documentaries, which seemed entirely different. And my mother was a geriatric social worker who started writing novels in her retirement, so she was clueless as well. Of course, there are plenty of folks that show up in Los Angeles with big dreams and find their way, so none of this is a valid excuse. If anything, this was the opportunity that could have led to others, and I even had more chances which I languished on and squandered by getting in my own way or expecting something from without knowing what or how. No one tells you that the film industry is like any other and that it's tedious and you won't like everyone you work with or most of what you are actually doing, not everyone will be smart or sensible and they will definitely not be respectful of your limits talent these are all things you simply need to know and maintain and cultivate for yourself along with understanding why it it matters to you truthfully this is something I am still finding myself coming to grips with about the world in general my father's work was his lifeline and a point of pride he was passionate about it because it was righteous and moral but also because he developed and directed his own study the capital jury project he was a research professor so essentially he had students that worked for him to gather data helping conduct interviews compile statistics and write grants in other words he basically founded and ran a nonprofit with the infrastructural support of the university power that he had was profound and invigorating for him especially being blind i didn't really understand or appreciate how skewed this made my perception of what work would be like my mother's job was also important in its own way it was more direct and interpersonal but she seemed bound by her workplace which was part of why she decided to retire early I used to say I wanted to be a social worker like her when I grew up, but after hearing enough of her day-to-day over the years, I realized that while I like to help people, I do not have the patience or tolerance required to deal with that system. I think the fact that both my father's research and my mother's work involved reflecting on death in very different ways gave it an energetic quality that satisfied a need in both of them. My parents always stressed the importance of academics over work, so I didn't have much of a resume before I graduated college, even in food service or retail. It's been counterintuitive to monetize my labor and rationalize its relationship to my sense of self. Academia made me think that most careers required understanding and consideration before doing, and getting paid was beside the point privileged, I admit. I held myself accountable to pursue something grander and make an impact, which only led me further along in self-doubt. I try to just focus now on whatever nourishes me. And given the current times we're in, that's making this podcast. To tell a story or craft anything really that makes people be present and connect through a shared instance satisfying the ways in which this can be done are infinite and i've always enjoyed seeing how different peers and friends have found their own way to fulfill this need still it's easy to lose sight of this in the monotony and frustration of not having what one offers embraced or feeling it is unable to grow and bloom as it should ultimately Though my dad loved and was dedicated to his work, capital punishment still exists in this country, and therefore his research and mission was not complete before he died. He was cynical as a form of self-defense, but whatever his remaining hopes, they were dashed with the 2016 election. I don't know if the direction I'm going now will manifest into a lasting profession, but I think it's helping me find meaning during this solitude and that's good enough the work one does to create a career allows them allows us to exist nothing more nothing less provide a benefit, or something in between. Its worth grows with the time you put into it, regardless of the financial income or the social outcome it provides. A recurring theme you'll discover is that my dad always was referencing the time. The time difference between the East and West Coast makes sense for logistical reasons, but also a span of time passage of time was often mentioned in these voicemails I think there was another way this gave him a sense of control of his surroundings and comfort in keeping time he had a talking watch that he wore every day and checked it frequently if you know me you may also know about my character flaw of being overly punctual to anything and everything I show up to parties exactly at the time given, often being the first one there. I refuse to dilly-dally or get distracted before I know I have anywhere to be. If I do ever take my time, it's usually because I've given myself an ample cushion and will be arriving early anyway. I used to get frustrated by others' tardiness, but I have now generally accepted this is a meat problem and not something to impose on others. I'm primarily drawn to art forms that are time-based, such as this one. I cannot blame this all on my father, but I do think that I have a greater awareness of time because of him. He had an odd circadian rhythm, waking at dawn to jog, have breakfast and work, then taking a nap in the mid-morning before working more, having lunch, and then a siesta. As his health declined due to cardiovascular dementia, his confusion with time grew and spiraled. The harder he tried to orient himself in time, the quicker it slipped away from him. Since I've been 18, I've never spent more than about four years residing in one place. Within that, the longest I've ever lived in any particular apartment or home has never exceeded two years. Just as I like to be on time, I like to know when my time is up. I fear I can only accomplish or start something when I know at what point it will need to end. This is my first time staying past that four-year expiration point, and truthfully, that thought makes my skin crawl. But I am trying to loosen my grip on time. Ease off the gas pedal and slow down a bit. Take it in patience lets a garden grow. There's still a place for deadlines and pacing and making plans, but to value time is not to limit it or even use it effectively and efficiently. For at some point, time will be wasted one way or another. It simply matters what amount of that time we are present. I used to think that being in the moment involved knowing or having boundaries to work within but restrictions can make things stagnant. The choice to be present is a practice we must make whenever we can. It doesn't have to start at any certain point, and it may end sooner or later, but the important thing is to keep focusing on what brings us closer to sensing our surroundings, making time with one another. That's truly what helps us live. So this is my offering, my service. For this moment, I hope you've enjoyed being alive with me. Thanks for listening. Come back again next week.